Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and uh, <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, just a kind of crazy last um, month and a half or so, I would say. You know, last time I talked, I'd been in Europe for the wedding, saw the Spanish family, did some traveling, blah, 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 lots of stuff there. I'm back. I ended up going back to California and Reno for a little bit, had some work to do there and interviews and stuff like that. And um, now I'm back. I'm back in Chicago. It was nice to be back in the West Coast. Um, you know, here it's really flat. Every time I've had a friend visit, they always land at O'Hare, usually O'Hare, Midway's chaotic. Um, usually they land at O'Hare and just go, it's really flat here. I don't see a mountain. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I mean, even if you land in LA or Sacramento or Seattle, there's the, you, you know, there's stuff in the distance that you can see. There's mountains. Um, and here it's just not the case. And so it was nice to be back to elevation. Um, so, but I'm back here now. It's pouring rain outside. I'm watching the puddles grow. And yeah, I'm back in Chicago. I don't know for how much longer. It looks like I'm probably going to be here at least for a month or two more. Maybe a little bit longer, but I think my time in Chicago is slowly coming to an end. I sort of hope. <laughs> But anyways, um, I'm glad to be back. Going to be back to some normalcy now, um, normalcy. Um, just been kind of chaotic. And boy, there is so much to talk about. So much is happening. I've tried to think through some things I'd like to talk about today just because, well, so much has happened, like I said. So today I want to focus on some of the things that I've picked out over the last few days, which include a troubling warning from Russia about a dirty bomb which I think is likely projection by the Kremlin itself. Probably not actually a Russian warning, but more like Russia trying to um, escalate or false flag, whatever you want to call it. I also want to discuss the midterms and how I'm worried about Republicans doing well, even though they don't really have much of an agenda, and also how voter intimidation is starting to rise at poll boxes, drop boxes, etc. I also want to kind of reflect a little bit on the anti-Semitism and the danger of Kanye West's latest comments, especially because over last weekend uh, we saw on the 405 in Los Angeles signs and neo-Nazis saying Kanye's right about the Jews. And I just think during these strange economic times, these strange times of hate, division, intimidation, that uh, someone with a platform like Kanye, for him to say this, it's not good, even if he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's, it's troubling. But first, as a bit of a palate cleanser or whatever you want to call it, I thought it was interesting to note that yesterday, apparently Clarence Thomas, one of the justices in the Supreme Court, agreed to freeze a lower court order requiring the testimony of Republican Senator Lindsey Graham in front of that Atlanta era, area sorry, special grand jury that's investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And from my understanding, it was only Thomas in the Supreme Court who did this. And he was able to do so because he has jurisdiction over the lower courts in this area. I am not a court expert, so I'm not exactly sure how that happens. But apparently, Thomas can do that. Thomas's actions were under something called administrative stays, which will give the courts more time to look into the dispute itself. And apparently, lower courts, though, have said that Graham's actions making calls on behalf of the Trump campaign in Georgia are not protected by free speech for lawmakers, which seems obvious to me. It's one thing just speaking to, you know, election officials or whoever in the area, but it sounded like he was calling to dig up some things for Trump. It's troubling as a lawmaker who should be independent of these things, especially because 
Well, Lindsey Graham is South Carolina, and this was in Georgia. Uh, Lindsey Graham's an interesting character. His fall from grace is always fascinating to me. But, you know, I think later in the week, I'm actually going to do an episode on kind of this new political realignment we're seeing right now is like, to me, there's really no left or right as much anymore. There's kind of like three different sects, like establishment, reactionary and progressive. And there's a lot of overlap. There's kind of like a tri Venn diagram happening right now, because we have like the Carrie Lakes, who were former Obama supporters and went to drag shows who are now like far right. You have Tulsi Gabbard, who's now all of a sudden campaigning with Kerry Lake, says the Democrats are too extreme and the Republicans are sensible, you know, and, and you have just these overlaps of people that are former Democrats or and are now like QAnon or you have these Republicans who are now like Liz Cheney working with Democrats. Like it just seems like it's more like there's establishment versus reactionary versus progressive right now. But anyways, I'm not going to get too far into that, but None of it makes sense anymore. None of it makes sense anymore. So moving on to the first thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about this dirty bomb situation that I think broke yesterday. So obviously I've been off for (laughs) several weeks and too much to really count has happened in the Ukraine-Russia invasion situation. You know, we had, well, first Putin called for the conscription of 300,000 men in Russia. We saw people fleeing the borders. If you had dual citizenship in Russia, they pretty much said, fuck the other one you have. You're, you're a Russian now and you're going to be enlisted. <laughs> so pretty much um, reinstating the draft in Russia, I just think that's a whole nightmare. My theory on that before we keep going is that historically, the Russians have kind of thrown cannon fodder. They've thrown bodies into these places. And then they can kind of say, see, our blood is on the soil now. We need to defend our honor, defend our blood. I think maybe Putin was trying to do that, is just send as many people into Ukraine as possible and then say, see, we have a lot of dead there. Our blood is literally soaked in the soil. We need to fight for that. Uh, I I mean, that's just kind of my, my instinct on that a little bit. But anyways, we had that. We had people trying to flee the country. I don't blame them. I would not want to fight for this failed military operation, special operation, whatever they call it in Russia, what I call a genocidal attack on a sovereign country. But anyways, then we had, oh, I mean, I'm kind of going out of order. We had the Nord Stream pipeline, which exploded. The West is blaming Russia. Russia is blaming the West. Honestly, I could kind of see an argument for either side on that one. We also had the Crimean Bridge explosion, which was kind of Putin's pet project in the area, which then led to Putin doing indiscriminate bombings throughout Kiev, including parks, hospitals, pedestrian areas, you know, just indiscriminately killing children again. And then, and then he basically says, well, Zelensky needs to just give us Eastern Ukraine. And then people say, well, we need to have an off-ramp. We need to talk. It's like, it's kind of hard to talk when the Russians keep just killing innocent civilians indiscriminately. You know, it's, I just always find it funny. Well, I mean, ironic or depressing that so many people are like, we need to bring these two to the table to talk. Like, I get it. Diplomacy is good. But when you keep just killing so many innocent people indiscriminately, it's kind of hard to get the Ukrainians on board with that. But anyways, then we have, you know, declaring martial law in the annexed territories in the east, which is kind of ironic because if they were really part of Russia, as Putin claims the Donbass region, Donetsk, and other parts are, then you would think you wouldn't have to declare martial law to keep the people from doing anything, but it just shows the danger of what's happening over there. So I'm sure most of you that listen to this are fairly up to date on this stuff, so I'm not going to go into m- many more details, but this game of chicken, this escalation, this rhetoric, everything is troubling. And 
However, today, <laughs> I do want to discuss this, this story that broke yesterday. And basically, there are new fears coming out of the West that Vlad Putin, our, our buddy Vlad Putin, might be planning his own escalation to change the course of a war at best, or I mean at worst, sorry, or just keep fucking with us mentally. And some think it's something like a false flag attack or a pretext, whatever you want to say. So over the weekend, kind of to give some background here, numerous reports have discussed how Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shogu, warned defense officials in a lot of places, France, Turkey, Britain, and the United States, basically that Ukraine was preparing a provocation and the use of what he called a dirty bomb. And apparently the situation is steadily trending toward a further uncontrolled escalation. And this is what Sergei Shogu warned in one of the calls, but he didn't really elaborate on this. But basically, from, yeah, from my understanding, Russia was basically going around calling several defense officials in Western countries who Russia's really not talked with that much on a high level like that, basically saying Ukraine's going to detonate a dirty bomb. And if they do detonate a dirty bomb, then it gives us a pretext to escalate this war. Now, this was somewhat surprising to me because the Russian officials, A, have been avoiding communicating with many Western countries. And it's also more surprising to me because Russia is claiming that Ukraine itself would use the dirty bomb. Look, war brings out the worst in both sides, no doubt. And I'm sure by the end of this, there is going to be atrocities committed by both sides. That's unfortunately kind of what happens. But you can't really convince me that Ukraine is considering this. I think, contrarily, none of us would be surprised if Russia was itself going to use a dirty bomb. That would make more sense to me, because according to Reuters, Russia doubled down on its claim that Kiev is preparing to use a dirty bomb, and it said it would bring the issue to the UN Security Council on Tuesday. I could rant about this all day, but it's more and more clear that the UN Security Council is a complete useless joke. I mean, they never actually do what they say they're going to do, have despots on it anyways, but... For now, I'll digress on that, but Reuters also mentioned that Russia's ambassador to the UN wrote in a statement yesterday that said, in quotes, we will regard the use of the dirty bomb by the Kyiv regime as an act of nuclear terrorism. And this is troubling because it basically means that if Russia thinks Ukraine has used a dirty bomb or if any dirty bomb has been used, they will retaliate in probably horrid ways based on how Putin reacted to the bridge blowing up. I can't even imagine what they would do if a dirty bomb exploded. Now, Again, I think this is mere projection by Russia, and the country is working on creating some sort of pretext, false flag type of situation. Tom Nichols, who I, I like to really read his columns on this stuff because he was with the Naval War College. He's also a Russia expert. He's a professor, really smart guy. He has a great article in The Atlantic that discusses this in be better detail. He notes that in quotes, by groundlessly suggesting that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb, the Kremlin is testing the West and potentially provoking a nuclear standoff. And Nichols also does a good job of clarifying um, something that I always forget. And, you know, just for those who maybe don't know or need a reminder, a dirty bomb is not a nuclear bomb itself. Instead, it's a conventional explosive warhead that's kind of wrapped around a lot of radioactive material that's dangerous. It's obviously not good. You don't want a dirty bomb going off. And... This radioactive material that, su that surrounds the normal type of bomb could be anything from radiological material in a hospital to nuclear waste, right? So it's, it's, very, it's, it's very improvised explosive that are not technically nuclear bombs, but, you know, if, if one went off, it could make a small area 
uninhabitable or difficult to go through. It can definitely have some radioactive effects that are very dangerous still. So in this article, Nichols also brings up a great point about how he hopes this is just a scare tactic because obviously Russia does this before, but he also does think it could be a false flag. I want to read this little section of passages here because I think it's just worth noting. So he writes here, this dirty bomb charge could be part of the preparation for a Russian false flag operation in which the Russians will explode their own dirty bomb, perhaps in the occupied territories of Ukraine or close to the Russian border, then blame Ukraine and then demand that Ukraine surrender or face nuclear retaliation. It could also be a way of trying to scare off Ukraine's Western supporters with threats of escalation. Russia would probably try to flip the script and go from, a, from an aggressor likely guilty of war crimes to the victim of a nuclear event. It might then issue an ultimatum to the Ukrainians that elevates the war to a nuclear crisis, which is probably the only way Moscow thinks it can win now that the Russian army lies in pieces on the battlefield. And look, I mean, this would not surprise me because obviously they are up a creek without a paddle, to put it lightly, the Russians are. And if you could have any way to turn the narrative around this war, especially with some sort of dirty bomb, it could escalate things in so many ways. And maybe to some in the world, it would help Russia maybe paint a different light. Though, from my understanding, everyone in the West is seeing right through this. Now, of course, we will have to see because, you know, there's so much uncertainty coming out. And I think it's clear that these are false allegations from Russia, though and that Ukraine does not have a dirty bomb. That's my instinct here. Again, I could be wrong, but that's just what I would think at this point. Especially, like, it would be troubling if Putin did this on, like, some of the annexed territory, you know, in eastern Ukraine, just because it's technically his, even though a lot of Ukrainians still think it's theirs. And then he could just claim that it's an act against Russia. It would be troubling. Last night, I did watch an interview with John Kirby, who's the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council in the Biden White House. And he says that because these calls came from Russia directly, there are causes for, for concern, which I kind of touched on earlier. He also said it's common for Russia to allege things that they're actually going to do, which I kind of touched on earlier, is that projection. And we, we really don't want a false flag pretext type of situation right now, just because the escalation is so bad. But, you know, Kirby did clarify, and it's something that I always tend to forget, but it's always somewhat reassuring, I guess, kind of, is that we do have an embassy still in Moscow. So there are people there trying to communicate. We also do have connections with Russian officials. We do have a phone line that is still open. Now, would Putin or Shogu or some of these people pick it up? I don't know, but we do still have open communications. I, I again, hope Russia is just threatening, just trying to play the mind games with us, but... Again, Putin is being humiliated. I think he's desperate and he must really feel like he needs to just find some mental pressure to get kind of back here. I mean, it's very common for them to do this type of stuff. So it it, it just wouldn't wouldn't really surprise me. And, you know, to kind of on top of this, I, I was thinking about this on a run back when I was in Tahoe and now it's just gotten even worse is that, you know, the Ukrainians and the Russians don't even know where their borders are for their own countries at this point. You know, it's Putin's muddled the waters so much by annexing these territories, even though some of the people don't agree. And so when Putin threatens nuclear weapons to defend borders that he cannot even define, and his own people don't know where they exist, it's just going to lead to severe issues. And I think, again, we're seeing that. So we're just going to have to keep following this, but no good news to report out of there. Anyways, moving on back to the United States. I do want to talk about the midterms, which are, what, the second Tuesday of the month. So let's see... 
yeah, exactly two weeks from today, the 8th, I believe it is. I can't believe how quick things are flying. It seems like we've been speculating on the midterms for a long time, and now it's almost November. I'm almost 28, and the, oh God, 28. But anyways, the uh, much-anticipated midterms are almost here. Before I get into some worries I have about Democrats maybe coming up short, I do want to start by, you know, kind of touching on some growing concerns of political violence and voter intimidation that may occur before or on or after the 8th. Basically, it seems like the Stop the Steal movement has kind of led to people now doing the Watch the Polls movement. And it's obviously not surprising because since the 2020 election, you have had fringe candidates, fringe Republicans, the media touting election fraud lies and urging voters to watch boxes. You've had documentaries like 2000 Mules by Dinesh D'Souza, which is about voter fraud and pretty much illegitimate ballots being dropped in coordination by these mules. I haven't watched it. I don't plan on watching it. But you have books like his, which is currently number one on Apple Books for politics and current events. So a lot of people are reading this. Um, You have Carrie Lake, who will likely be the next governor of Arizona. She's called for arresting those who conduct voter fraud, sorry, is still denying the last election results. She was asked if she would um, accept the results if she lost this one. And she said only if the results are legitimate and she has evidence that the election was carried out fairly, which I think is kind of in the in the eyes of the beholder. So, you know, they've been they've been kind of. I guess you could say they've been dumping kerosene on dry wood for quite some time now, but they haven't lit the match completely yet. It's kind of a lot like what happened before January 6th, is they were just getting this pile of dry wood higher, and they were pouring gasoline on it, and they were just waiting for a time to light the match. But they've been lying to their base, to their voters, to each other, (laughs) kind of gaslighting themselves, and just slowly supporting each other more and more for now two years. And so, of course, there's going to be people out there doing intimidation, watching the ballots, thinking that they're fighting for the rights. And, you know, you have like Mark Fincham, who's running for the secretary of state in Arizona. He's a former oath keeper and doesn't even understand Democrats at all because he's he doesn't even know what they believe in because he's never spent time around them. He's a kook. Mastriano in Pennsylvania can choose his own secretary of state if he wins. And these people all just believe that they're doing the right thing. And, you know, there's hundreds of of election deniers on the ballot. But so it's not surprising when you've been lying to your base for two years about this stuff. Of course, you're going to now have people out there intimidating people at the ballot boxes and harassing poll watchers, etc. And The Guardian has an article from a few days ago that discusses how early voters in Arizona midterms are reporting harassment by poll watchers. Poll watchers is kind of a nice way of describing some of these people, in my opinion. But anyways, the article writes in quotes here, A voter in Maricopa County, Arizona, claims a group of people watching a ballot box photographed and followed her after they, dis- after they deposited their ballots at the box, accusing them of being mules. So back to Dinesh D'Souza's lovely documentary. Also last night I saw on the news a video of a group of armed people watching other drop boxes in Maricopa County, They were just kind of sitting there, lawn chairs out, lights on, wearing masks, guns in holsters, watching. Um, You know, that I think that would intimidate some people, maybe especially immigrants or certain minority groups, especially in in these cities. Like, I I think it's appalling. And it's something you would see in an autocratic banana republic, in my opinion, even though the Republicans keep saying that's what the Democrats want. I mean, you don't have the Democrats out there watching ballot boxes like this. 
And this is just dangerous intimidation, but it's inevitable, like I said. And to get even more rosy, there's a gal, Mary McCord, who's the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law School. And she said that, in quotes, extremists are increasingly pursuing a decentralized strategy for spreading election misinformation and intimidating voters. And Bloomberg has an article that discusses how McCord gave a panel discussion. And she she basically described how after January 6th, extremist organizations like the Proud Boys and the Proud Boys, sorry, and the three percenters are shifting focus to more local elections to do intimidation and bring stuff on the ground there. And so that's uh, very troubling to me. But from what I've just been seeing around the country, it's worrying. And the Justice Department has opened investigations into this. Merrick Garland has said they will not let intimidation be allowed. But, you know, there's just it's just not great news. And we're gonna have, I'm probably going to do a longer segment on this as things get closer uh, because I, I do worry... Like I said, you know, there's been a lot of kerosene being dumped on this pile of wood and it hasn't quite gone up in flames yet, but I'm just worried what happens when it does. And I'm not trying to be alarmist, but, you know, people have been told that, like, Democrats are stealing elections, that frauds are bad, there's mules dropping fake ballots or stealing ballots or satellites are coming or whatever. So, you know, I think things could get worse. Anyways, looking at the actual midterms themselves... It seems like Democrats may not do as well as some of us had hoped during the summer. You know, things were looking up after that abortion referendum in Kansas and just the growing anger about the Dobbs decision. Also, the extreme rhetoric we were seeing from candidates like Blake Masters in Arizona, who basically said no abortion, no matter what, full stop. And then they've kind of stepped back. They've been quiet about abortion. The economy, again, has gotten worse. You know, inflation was looking better towards the end of the summer, and then it got worse again. Fuel prices went up again. The war in Ukraine's not looking good. Prices are still rising at the stores. And, um, you know, the, the Republicans smartly were quiet about their extreme rhetoric on abortion. And I'm worried that the momentum that was in favor of the Democrats may have peaked a bit too early. It peaked back in July and August. And 538 Politics has an article out from yesterday, I believe, which was Monday, that mentions in quotes, four months, Democrats were defying midterm gravity. Now it looks like they may be coming back down to earth. And the article discusses how the generic congressional ballot is this poll question that asks people nationwide which party they plan to vote for. It's not names. It's nothing like that. It's just like, will you vote for the Republicans or the Democrats for Congress? And apparently even in mid-October, I think it was like October 13th, Democrats were up 1.1 percentage points. Again, not very, (laughs) not very significant, but still more than more than the Republicans. And however, now on the 24th, when this article came out, now Republicans are up by 0.5 percentage points, meaning that the momentum may be on their side. And 538 also notes that two of the best pollsters in the business, Monmouth University and Siena College slash New York Times Upshot, both support these results, showing that momentum is going back towards Republicans. The 538 article also notes that Democrats' chances of holding on to the Senate have actually fallen from about 66 in 100, which was on October 13th as well, to now 55 in 100 today. And we're not even that close to the, I mean, we are close, but now we still have time for that to even change more. And Republicans have gone from having a 69 in 100 chance of flipping the House back on October 13th to now an 80 in 100 chance today. So it seems clear that no one really expected the Democrats to take the House, but there was almost a 70% chance of them taking the Senate 
which is now much lower. You know, 55 and 100 for Democrats to take the Senate is just too close for comfort, in my opinion. And there's some really close races in the Senate. You know, when I was back in, back in Nevada, I was reading up on Cortez Masto, the Democrat, versus Laxalt. And, you know, that's a significant election. But, um, you know, while Cortez Masto, I think, is favored, Laxalt could probably win and I think will win. In Georgia, you know, you have Walker versus Warnock, and Walker's now holding up his fake badge, and it's insane that that's actually stuck. He's delusional. He should not be there. He's clearly a hypocrite, but he's also close with Warnock and could likely win as well. Oz and Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Oz is just a despicable candidate, but um, as the economy gets worse, I think a lot of Republicans are like, well, we'll still go with him. And Fetterman clearly has not recovered completely from the stroke yet, so that's always of a concern. And you have in Ohio, just to name a few, um, you know, Tim, Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance is an awful candidate. I think Ryan is a great kind of more centrist populist. And uh, he's not getting as much funding as he needs from the Democratic Party. And it's really still very close. J.D. Vance could still beat him, even though J.D. is an awful candidate. And so you could see the Republican win all of these. I mean, if it's a 55 and 100 you know, the Democrats have a small advantage, but, you know, you could flip the coin twice and potentially see, <laughs> you know, the second time the Republicans winning there. So not good. And it's just kind of sad that some of these awful candidates that just shouldn't even be running are and could win. Before continuing, I do just, you know, it's important to note that usually the party of the president struggles in the midterms. And it just seems like this would happen. But it's just ab abnormal for the circumstances, I guess. Now, I think there's a few reasons why the Democrats may struggle in the midterms. First, um, 538 does make an interesting point. It notes that Democrats aren't fielding a candidate in 23 House districts this year. So they won't even get votes there, right? There's just no, no chance. And in comparison, there are only 14 districts where Republicans aren't fielding a candidate. Now, I, I'm assuming that's probably a calculation. I mean, there's probably just districts that they know they don't have a chance, but that's troubling because I like what's happening in Utah. You have Evan McMullen versus Mike Lee for the Senate, and McMullen is a lifelong Republican, a Mormon, who is now running it as an independent and has been endorsed by the Democratic Party, and he could beat Mike Lee because Mike Lee... He's kind of shown who he is, and I think the Mormons do have a lot of high moral codes, and he might not stand up to those. And McMullen is kind of hard for Mike Lee to attack, mainly because McMullen is not a Democrat. He said he wouldn't even caucus with the Democrats. And so all the talking points, all the Fox News talking points that Mike Lee likes can't really be used on McMullen because he's not really one of them. And so that's an interesting one. And I think maybe in some of these places, the in the House that the Democrats didn't even field a candidate. Maybe they could have helped work with independents, right? Because sometimes the D is toxic, but sometimes maybe have an independent run and just endorse them. So I don't know. I think the Democrats could have done this better. But moving on, I think the main reason that we're seeing this momentum shift is because of the economy. And Democrats is just constant inability to campaign on issues that matter to average Americans, and I'm not saying abortion and stuff doesn't, believe me, I'm not, but it just seems like Democrats are remaining focused on Biden's record, for example. They are focused on what they've done so far. And what I mean is they are focused on discussing the Inflation Reduction Act, their moves to fight climate change, their focus on new vaccines. How will they fight for Roe v. Wade? And how will they keep funding Ukraine? They aren't 
again, I, I will say these are these are important issues, but in this current climate, it seems like they are not talking about what a lot of voters are really concerned about. And that means the economy, rising prices, and the looming issue of a recession that by the day seems more and more likely to happen. And the Democrats have not been focused enough on the economy until now. And I think people feel like they're being talked past. You know, Republicans, of course, do not really have a plan for the economy. I've said this time and time again, and I think they'd make it worse based on some of the things Mike or Kevin McCarthy has said. But the Republicans are good at reminding voters about rising crime, immigration, gas prices, economic woes, and inflation. And if they are able to keep bringing it up and reminding voters while Democrats are trying to ride the wave of the Dobbs decision and Biden's record, I think it's going to hurt them. And I'm obviously simplifying this a little bit, but I think that is the case. I think... They need to look in the mirror. And look, groceries are insanely expensive right now. Gas is insanely expensive. Energy prices are getting worse. Not as bad as in Europe, but they're getting worse. And it's just not enough anymore to discuss past success when people have issues that currently need to be solved and haven't been. And ironically, it does seem like Democrats finally understand this. But again, it's way too late, of course. Big shocker. The New York Times has an article called Fearing a New Shellacking, Democrats Rush for an Economic Message. And the article discusses many things I've already mentioned. It notes that Democrats thought they did not need to discuss inflation as much if they focused on the Dobbs decision. And that seems to be wishful thinking. Like I said, the anger has, I mean, of course it's still, still an issue for a lot of, especially women, progressive women. That is a huge issue, but it seems like it was wishful thinking to run on that. The, the number one issue from everything I've seen pretty much all over the summer has been the economy. The article also discusses, though, on Monday, so yesterday, Democrats finally unveiled new messages that appeared to switch tasks. The article writes in quotes here, incorporating achievements of the past two years with expressions of sympathy on the economy and dire warnings for what Republicans might bring. That is their new message. The article continues to discuss how Democrats would continue to hammer Republicans on abortion and their ties to Donald J. Trump to boost turnout among their core supporters, while simultaneously trying to win over undecided voters whose biggest concerns are inflation and crime. Now, Will Salatin, who writes for The Bulwark, I was listening to him and Charlie Sykes yesterday, and he had a good point. He's like, say you're looking at a football game where the team is losing, and they've been running the ball most of the game, and they decide to switch to passing in the fourth quarter. Maybe people would go, oh, see, passing is a better strategy. But Will, Will Salatin says, nah, they're probably starting to pass, and they're probably still not going to win because the running game isn't working. It doesn't mean the passing game is going to work. It means the running game wasn't working. And I think that goes into this now is that it's a little too late because the, the, the Democrats' strategy for months has now been focusing on past achievements, abortion, the radicalization of the Republican Party. But that's not working, so now really late they're trying to appeal to the economy while maybe they're not that strong at appealing to that either. And I just can't help but roll my eyes because there's some arrogance here by the Democrats that's irritating. You know, for months they've seen the numbers, what's important to Americans. And look, it seems like it's just too late. Democrats finally understand they must discuss the economy. And I, like, I, like I've said, and I'll just say it again, is that I think they are better suited to help people right now. The Republicans, many in the Senate, did not even support lower insulin costs. They want to cut Social Security spending. They believe in taxing lower income communities, as we saw in Rick Scott's plan, so a regressive tax. 
They agree with some of the tax cuts that Liz Truss in the UK enacted that led to the pound free falling, and they would cut funds to Ukraine, as Kevin McCarthy had mentioned. I just think that it's depressing that the Democrats may still do poorly in these midterms when they are clearly at least more policy-minded here. So I don't know. We're going to have to keep following this, but I am not feeling optimistic right now. Again, who knows? Polls are wrong. These times are crazy. Things could shift, but my optimism is not, let's just say, growing by the day. Um, so before we're out of here, I wanted to just talk about Kanye West, or Ye, as he's called, which is stupid. Uh, I want to talk about his comments from a few weeks ago. I wasn't going to say much. Uh, I think everything I wanted to say has mainly been said. But then, you know, on Sunday when I was watching the NFL, I was on my laptop and I saw that bridge on the 405 in Los Angeles, which was full of neo-Nazis with signs that said Kanye is right about the Jews or some, something to that effect. And I have read about people passing around anti-Semitic pamphlets in LA and harassing Jews. And it just seems like things are not going very well and the escalation is troubling. And I decided I needed to say some things because Kanye has gone way too far this time. I'm not going to go into everything he said, but I will say that he pretty much touted every anti-Semitic trope possible, from the Jews controlling society, to, to them all being rich, to them being a problem, to black Christians actually being Jews, to Jews being responsible for racism in the United States, blah, 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 right? Lots of, lots of bullshit. And in these troubling times, West has a huge, huge platform. And he just put blame on a whole group of people for his woes and a whole group of people that have always been picked on with these type of conspiracies. And I've, I've been really thinking about this a lot lately. And I think the issue in the U.S. is that we don't teach much about, I guess, how the Holocaust happened. Like we talk about the American perspective of Normandy, right? The concentration camps, the Japanese war theater, the internment camps, D-Day, all that type of stuff. People are aware of what happened, obviously, to the Jewish community during the war. They know how Hitler was crazy, right? But they don't talk about the circumstances that led to it. And so I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to understand why Kanye's rhetoric is so tried and true. And during hard times, it can really push people in the wrong direction. You know, we don't... Well, there's a good book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It was written, I want to say, in the 70s or 80s. And it's by someone whose name is escaping my mind right now who actually grew up and lived during the rise and fall of the Nazis. And the book is long. It's like a thousand something pages. And I've slowly read it. And it describes kind of the circumstances. And, you know, we don't talk about how German society was struggling after World War I, how the economy was in a recession and then a depression, how the country was looking to blame something for all the issues, I guess you could say, that happened after the First World War. Society was broken. The democratic regime was collapsing and um, conspiracies started circulating about the Jewish community and there was already anti-Semitism that just got fueled. People got more desperate as the economy got worse. The Nazis came to power. They turned these conspiracies into true acts of rage and violence and demonization. And during a time like this, demonization is a powerful tool. And as people get more desperate, they are willing to go with these conspiracies. And you know, some people just don't seem to understand why Kanye's comments were bad, but they, they were awful because he's circulating these same type of tropes that have happened time and time again in history from, you know, 2000 years ago to what happened in Germany. And I did, 
I, I mean, I, I guess I could say I think people assume it couldn't happen here, right? And it probably wouldn't happen here, much like what happened in Germany. But it's just going down. It's a strange time right now. And I guess if you are somewhat down on your luck in the United States, right, the economy is not good for you. And then you hear Kanye discussing how the Jews run everything and they're doing well and they're wealthy and blah, blah, blah. You start believing it and centering the blame on a group. And like I said, during tough times, demonization is a dangerous tool. And Kanye's kind of added a platform to that. And look, I think Kanye is mentally unwell, but it's becoming harder to just blame his mental illness on all of this, right? There's a lot of people with mental illness, but they don't go on these anti-Semitic tirades. He's definitely a reactionary, part of one of those three political categories I talked about a little bit earlier. And he likes to get a rise out of people. I'm still not sure if he even knows how dangerous these statements are. And I would probably think he doesn't. But again, there's like 14.8, 14.9 million Jews in all of the world. And Kanye has about 18 million followers on Instagram alone. He has a huge platform and it's just unacceptable to say these things because there's people that believe them and think them. And I just, you know, seeing those people on the 405, it tells you that. And there's a lot more under the, that's the that was just in LA, right? Which is a, considered a pretty progressive city, right? <laughs> And I think Stephen A. Smith has a great point on this, uh, sports guy. On his podcast, he mentioned something interesting. He discusses how Kanye has only doubled down on his paranoia and rhetoric and is getting more difficult to defend, right? People have always kind of tried to defend Kanye. First, it was the MAGA stuff. First, it was saying that, like, black people are responsible for slavery. You know, Kanye's always been reactionary, and I think people have said, well, but his music is good, but this one's really hard to defend. And Smith said on his podcast, in quotes here, I sincerely hope that Kanye West can get it together, but I've got to admit I'm sincerely doubting he's going to pull that off after this. Folks are coming for him now, and they don't care about his money. They care about his voice. They want it silenced. And guess what? They're going to be able to pull it off. There's not a damn single one of us that's going to be able to say or do anything in his defense, because when we tried to warn him, he accused us of being puppets. He also says, um, sorry, it's a bit long, in quotes here, when you're wrong, you're wrong. When you're incendiary, you're incendiary. When you're insensitive, you're insensitive. And when you see him oblivious or indifferent to history and the impact that it has on many groups of people in the world, black, white, Jews, Gentile, it doesn't matter, Latinos, Asian Americans, or whatever, you got to be called on the carpet for it, especially when you don't seem to have an apologetic bone in the body. And that's where we are with Kanye West as we sit here right now. Because ladies and gentlemen, excuse my language, but this shit is bad. This is really, really bad, what he has been doing. And I think that's well said. And uh, I, I, I think... I think part of it, too, is people need to stop having him on their podcasts, let him rant. He doesn't, look, he's, he was good at making music, right? I don't think we need to keep bringing him on to give his opinion on anything else. And the Tucker Carlson interview where they cut out parts and let him on, like, it was, it was clear Tucker had him on because he, he likes to be incendiary as well. Um, and then there's other podcasts that have had him on, and people need to stop giving this guy a platform because... The more he talks, the more it just seems like this guy is spouting dangerous rhetoric. And I'm usually for free speech, and I don't say cancel Kanye, kick him off everything, but I think a lot of people have a service to do, especially news platforms like Fox News or Fox Nation, or I think that was what he was on. Don't have these type of people on because it's, you're just doing a disservice to a community and being harmful. And I think that's different from canceling. That's just saying, what is the point of bringing Kanye on? Anyways, um... I hope you guys have a good day. Hopefully it's not pouring rain all day. I want to get out on a run and get some work done. 
I'll definitely be able to get the work done, but not the run. But anyways, um, stay safe and sane. Keep your head up, and uh, we'll be back later. Again, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, all that jazz. Peace.